Hi everyone, I'm Gary Knoll. This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Today, a major issue, and that is Ukraine. What is the truth? Where do we stand? What are the consequences of having misinformation, partial information, or full-out lies given to us on a daily basis? The mainstream media has been uniform. I'm talking about the New York Times, the Washington Post, Boston Herald, all of these publications and all the major networks and cable systems have agreed that whatever the administration says, whatever the Defense Department, the State Department, the White House says, we should trust. It's accurate. Is it? And what if they're wrong? What if they're wrong on any part of it? Well, we have someone who can tell us the truth. He is Scott Ritter. He is a former major in the United States Marine Corps, intelligence officer and military strategist during the Cold War with the Russian Union, Soviet Union, and in the Middle East. He served as a lead analyst for Marine deployment during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and in the Iraq-Iran War. During Operation Desert Storm, Scott was the ballistic missile advisor to General Schwarzkopf. Later, he assumed the role of the lead United Nations weapon inspector for seven years, overseeing Iraq's disarmament of its weapons of mass destruction program. He was one of the most forceful critics of the Bush administration's claims that Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction. Scott is now an author, a lecturer, has been very public about the American media's misinformation campaign and about Russia's incursions into Ukraine and the gross failures in the Biden White House foreign affairs policy and actions. He is the author of about 10 books dealing with Iraq, Iran, and nuclear arms control. His latest book is Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, a definitive history of the INF Treaty signed by Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan that Scott was intimately involved with. I also recommend his YouTube channel, U.S. Tour of Duty, for excellent daily coverage and analysis of the Ukraine-Russian conflict and other geopolitical events. Nice to have you with us today, Scott. Well, thank you for inviting me. Scott, we, we're delighted to have you on the program. So much has unfolded in this week on the Ukraine front. NATO, with many heads of state, including Biden and Sunak, is, have been meeting in Lithuania at this moment. Uh, I watched your latest mini-documentary, as it were, Agent Zelensky, which was excellent. If any mainstream media station or network were to show that film, the popular opinion would sink like the 1929 stock market crash because it was so damning. You didn't give your opinion. You showed facts. You showed documents. And that was only the first part. So I assume you have at least a part two forthcoming. You list and explain all this real estate property assets in Miami, London, Tuscany, Italy, Georgia, and of course, Moldy Homes in Ukraine. This is simply an actor, comedian from Ukraine, and Hollywood actors are not worth this much. How do you explain the money trail? It seems there was much more to this wealth than simply hobnobbing with corrupt Ukrainian oligarchs. So would you start and give us 
the overview, please, and then take us through some of the most important points and documentation of how corrupt the Zelensky is. And wouldn't it have been likely that all of our intelligence agencies would have known about this corruption, especially the National Security Agency, which monitors every telephone call, especially of world leaders. And then we have to ask, and if he can be shown to be this corrupt, what about all the money that we've given over $100 billion? The forum is yours. Well, I think we'll start off with um, answering the, the last part of your question first. Uh, does the United States know about the corruption of uh, Volodymyr Zelensky? And the answer is yes. We know everything about it. Um, Zelensky is the <clears throat> president of Ukraine in, in name only. Um, he, and, and, and in part two of the uh, documentary, I will uh, I'll, I'll discuss the um, mechanisms by which um, you know he is controlled by uh, Western interest, in particular British intelligence and American intelligence acting on behalf of their respective uh, governments. Um, you know, Ukraine as a nation um, is not something that the United States uh, nor England uh, care about, nor NATO. No one cares about Ukraine as a nation. If we did, we would have uh, spent uh, decades trying to clean it up, trying to, uh, to improve it. Ukraine is a tool. It's a tool that's being used by the United States and by Europe, uh, A, to enrich themselves. I mean, I, I don't want to go too far down the, the rabbit hole, but uh, you know, people just need to reflect on um, the board of Burisma and um, the role that played in enriching certain aspects of, uh, of the American uh, elite and in uh, facilitating uh, back-channel um, communications uh, between the United States uh, and Ukraine um, that, you know, the, the participants wanted kept out of the public eye. This is the way Ukraine has always worked. I, I know this personally. In 1997, I traveled to Ukraine on behalf of the United Nations. Um, the purpose of my mission was to get the Ukrainian government to intervene and stop the um, the work of, of a Ukrainian um he calls himself a businessman, but he's a black marketeer who was in the process of dismantling um, military industrial infrastructure that uh, was sort of legacy to Ukraine uh, by the Soviet Union when 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 the Soviet Union collapsed, dismantling it and selling it to the highest bidder, which in the case of for me was Iraq. Iraq was buying much of this equipment in violation of Security Council resolutions. So I traveled to Ukraine in an effort to um, to get the Ukrainian government to intervene. And what I found there was total dysfunction. This was in the time of, uh, of uh, President Kuchma. Um, I, I found a, a Ukraine that was divided uh, uh, politically, uh, divided in terms of what the, they wanted security-wise, but united in the fact that they needed to be part of NATO. That's all they wanted. They wanted NATO membership, not for security, but to make money. They basically re were viewing NATO membership as yet another uh, venue uh, in which Ukrainian corrupt oligarchs, uh, corrupt you know, political elites could tap into new streams of money. This has been Ukraine from day one. It is a nation that is governed by people whose motivation is not the betterment of the Ukrainian people, but the enrichment of a select 
uh, power elite, economic and political elite. Uh, Zelensky became part of this club. Uh, I talk about, you know, how does this comedian who, uh, I mean, he, he look, he made some money uh, being a comedian, but that doesn't happen on its own. Uh, the, the media enterprises in Ukraine are controlled by oligarchs. Uh, so it's not as though, um, you know, Zelensky was this this visionary entertainer who came up with a, um, you know, a, 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 a model. He's not David Letterman, who worked his way up through the system, had a wonderful show in the 1980s. I remember when I was in college, every night at midnight, I'd stay up to watch David Letterman because he had a product that was attractive to uh, college-age kids like myself. And then we followed him throughout as he as he as he improved his product. Uh, David Letterman, of course, had corporate support, but he was a self-made person. This isn't Zelensky. Zelensky was picked uh, by uh, Kolomoisky, a, a billionaire oligarch who owned uh, various uh, um, media outlets. Uh, he was given programs uh, that were deliberately designed to increase his popularity, culminating in a, um, a TV program called Servant of the People. And um, this is where Zelensky played a teacher who um, spoke out against the uh, corruption of the oligarchs. I mean, it's, it's ironic that an oligarch, a corrupt oligarch, is making a series in which a hero figure is speaking out against the corruption of the oligarchs. Um, it's the ultimate, you know, uh, it's, you know, bait and switch uh, thing. But, you know, Zelensky, the character that Zelensky plays, um, it, it becomes president in an unlikely uh, turn of events and uh, seeks to fight corruption. And um, in doing so, uh, this is much like the West Wing. If you remember the show, The West Wing, um, the, uh, the 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 lead actor uh, Martin Sheen is an actor. Anybody who's met Martin Sheen knows he's an actor. He's an actor with a certain political bent, but he's an actor. He's not the president of the United States. But many Americans looked at Martin Sheen's character and said Martin Sheen would be the perfect president because we want somebody like the man he's portraying on TV. We want that in the White House. We want this kind of nobleness, this this artificiality, because we all know that the people that go into the White House aren't noble people. They're narcissists who get selected at an early age uh, to be manipulated by a political system and sold to an American people. Um, it's it, they're, they're not who they proclaim to be. Well, this is Zelensky. Zelensky is the same thing. He's a comedian. And some people might say he's a funny comedian. I have to say that the scripts that he's read sometimes made me laugh. I watched the entire series, Servant of the People, and it was very well done very well done series it made the Zelensky character a compelling character which was the purpose of the series because now Zelensky was thrust into mainstream Ukrainian politics to oppose a an incumbent uh, Petro Poroshenko who was literally the servant of the oligarchs if you wanted to pick a figure that was defined by the evil oligarchs of the Zelensky show servant of the people Petro Poroshenko was that figure. And Zelensky, an actor, we need to remember, a comedian with no political experience, is suddenly thrust into the role of the honorable man, of the man with integrity that's taking on Poroshenko. And he's given a script to read, and he becomes the president of Ukraine, not because of his inherent leadership capability, but because of the fiction of the scripts that he's been reading. That's it. Now, Ukraine is then thrust into a 
a, a situation that Zelensky inherited, the war in Ukraine. Um, the war in Ukraine is, is, is another thing that the American people need to grasp onto. Um, it began as part of a coup, a coup d'etat in February of 2014, where the United States, together with the British, worked hand in glove with radical Ukrainian nationalists. But here's the important thing that the Americans need to understand. This isn't a relationship that began in the spur of the moment. In 2013, when demonstrations broke out in the streets of Kiev over uh, the, the incumbent uh, president, uh, Viktor Yanukovych's decision not to lean towards the European Union, but rather to uh, you know, assume a realism and, and go with Russia, because that's where the best benefit would be uh, for Ukraine. There were demonstrations in the streets and they turned violent in February. And people would say, well, that's spontaneous. That's what the, the mythology is, a spontaneous revolution against uh, Viktor Yanukovych. There's nothing spontaneous about it because the relationship between the United States and the Ukrainian nationalists that were behind this goes back to 1945. See, in 1945, World War II ended. And when World War II ended, there was a German general named Galen who ran a network of intelligence operatives in the on the Eastern Front, including stay-behind agents who were behind Soviet lines, comprised of Ukrainian nationalists who had been fighting alongside Nazi Germany since the very beginning of the conflict in 1939. One of the leaders of this Ukrainian nationalist movement was a man named Stepan Bandera. And he formed a, a, a group called the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. They had an insurgent army. Um, these people committed horrific acts of violence from the very beginning. When the German troops went into uh, Poland in 1939, it was the Banderists who were behind the massacre of people in in Poland, uh, in Lvov. When they moved into Western Ukraine, which had been occupied by the, the, the Soviets, that's where Lvov is, by the way, in 1941, they immediately went in and started murdering Jews. They were behind the massacre of the Jews in Kiev, in uh, Babi Yar. Um, in 1943, and we just had on July 12th, the anniversary of this, the 80th anniversary of the Volin Massacre, a year-long orgy of violence that left 110,000 Polish civilians, mainly uh, women and children, because the men were uh, off doing what men do in times of war, old people, women, children, slaughtered, butchered, poured into buildings, set on fire while the drunken Banderas shouted out, Slava Ukraina, glory to Ukraine, which is a war cry that's come to symbolize their evil ideology. And yet it's echoed today by ignorant people like Nancy Pelosi, who shouted that word out in the United States Congress as if it was something good. It's not. It's a term, Slava Ukraina, which has been perverted by the Banderas on behalf of the murder of hundreds of thousands of people. We looked at Galen. He was a war criminal, by the way. Galen was a man who was responsible for the deaths of many innocent people, a uh, war crime. But instead of prosecuting him as a war criminal, we said, come work for us because we want to use your links to the Banderas who stayed behind in Ukraine as an effort to destabilize the Soviet Union. And from 1945 until 1953, there was a covert war waged by the CIA on the ground in Ukraine against Soviet rule. 
Now, this isn't small. This isn't little gangsterism. 48,000 Soviet soldiers and security forces were killed in this fighting. Over 150,000 Ukrainians died in this fighting. Another 200,000 Ukrainians were killed, innocent Ukrainians killed as a result. This is massive fighting, massive disruption that was ultimately defeated by the Soviet authorities. When they defeated these Banderas, about 150,000 of them fled. And they came and they set up diasporas in the United States and Canada and elsewhere. Gary, 60 miles away from me in Ellenville, New York, there's a park called Heroes Park. In that park, there are five statues. One of these statues is Stepan Bandera. The other four statues are of similarly inclined criminal people from Ukrainian nationalists responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. And they call it Heroes Park. And every year, Ukrainian Americans gather in Heroes Park wearing the brown uniform of the Banderas, which is a direct, has direct lineage to Nazi uniforms and Nazi ceremonies. They parade around in torchlight parades, carrying the portrait of Stepan Bandera, proclaiming their allegiance to his ideology, which is an ideology of violence. This is happening today in America. The CIA has backed this from the very beginning. We supported the Banderas during their fight, and we supported them. The CIA continued to fund the Banderas movement up until 1990. So, and then after 1990, the CIA transferred the funding of this to non-CIA controlled entities such as the National Endowment for Democracy and other um, government-sponsored NGOs, which simply are fronts for CIA activity. We maintain connectivity with these people throughout. In 2014 was the effort by the CIA to push these people into power. And they began a war because remember, these are Ukrainian nationalists who view Russians as ethnic inferiors. And they began a war that was defined by ethnic genocide. In April of 2014, this new nationalist-driven government declared the ethnic Russians who opposed their coming to power as terrorists. And they began an anti-terrorism operation that led to a general conflict in the Donbass, which is basically an ethnic Russian-dominated region of Ukraine, consisting of two oblasts, Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, the, the ethnic Russians rose up, resisted. There was a war. Russia intervened indirectly. And uh, instead of defeating, a lot of Americans don't understand. In 2014, uh, the Russian forces had surrounded the Ukrainian army in Donetsk. There were 14,000 Ukrainian soldiers that were going to be slaughtered by the Russian army. Their fate was guaranteed. But instead of pulling the trigger... Vladimir Putin listened to the um, the intervention of uh, Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, and Francois Hollande, the president of France, who begged Putin not to slaughter the Ukrainians. They said, please, 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 let there be a ceasefire, spare these people, let them withdraw, and we will seek a peaceful resolution. And Putin agreed to this. It's called the Minsk Accords. And for the next eight years, Vladimir Putin and the Russian government sought to see these accords implemented. We now know, because of the confessions of Angela Merkel, Francois Hollande, and Petro Poroshenko, the Ukrainian president, that those three parties never viewed this as a legitimate path towards peace. They called it a sham, a shell designed to buy time so that NATO could build a Ukrainian army capable of liberating the Donbass from Russian control. This is a reality. This is a statement of fact. It's not me saying anything. Zelensky was part of this con. He, Petro Poroshenko had 
lost the the message, so to speak. He he was too corrupt. Ukraine wasn't functioning properly, uh, and he wasn't uh, moving in the direction that his allies in the West wanted. Zelensky was brought in as an unlikely candidate in 2019 election. He ran on a platform of peace. He went in and he conned the ethnic Russians in Ukraine into believing that if they voted for him, that he would push for a peaceful resolution. He said in the run-up that he would fall on his knees to Vladimir Putin uh, if he could bring an end to this conflict. Then he was elected, and the first thing he did is convene a war council. They have it on video, where he says, my path is war, my path is war, my path is war. He lied to everybody, not because he lied. He's a tool. He's a tool of the West. He's a tool of Ukrainian oligarchs who look to the West as a means of enriching themselves. All this money that we sent in to train the Ukrainian army, where do you think it goes? Do you think it actually goes into actually creating a Ukrainian military? Some of it does, but between 60 and 70% of it disappears, goes into the pockets of the Russian oligarchs, of the Russian generals, the corrupt, I mean, the Ukrainian oligarchs, Ukrainian generals, Ukrainian politicians. You asked where Zelensky gets his money. He gets his money from a cut. Zelensky is part of a corrupt scheme where he gets a cut of everything that goes in. His orbit is enriched. The people that he has surrounded himself with are enriched through this process. They make millions, hundreds of millions of dollars off of this corruption. And again, I want to remind the American people, it's our money. This is U.S. taxpayer money that's going into Ukraine without an audit, without an audit trail. Could you imagine a situation where any government uh, agency, well, I guess we can because the Pentagon has lost a trillion dollars over the course of several years, but uh, any normal U.S. government uh, organization, department, entity uh, receives U.S. taxpayer money um, but refuses to have an audit, refuses. This says, no, we're, we're not going to have an audit. The money's just in. You just got to trust us. Meanwhile, people who make $100,000 a year salary are buying $100 million homes in Miami. Wouldn't that begin to send off alarm signals that something's wrong here? As uh, Hamlet said, something's something's not right in, in, for the nation of Denmark. Something's not right in Ukraine. And what's not right is Zelensky as the figurehead leader of a nation whose business is corruption. See, this isn't just about Zelensky. Every single person in Ukraine that's involved is corrupt. There's not a single honest person in Ukraine in the Ukrainian government because you can't be honest. Because in order to get in, you have to buy yourself, buy your buy your way in. You have to bribe people to come into the system. Then you have to give them their loyalty, like the Godfather demands loyalty. Kiss the ring. Uh, and then once that happens, they bring you into the system. They give you a responsibility that has a budget, understanding that you will strip away. 60 to 70% of that budget to enrich yourself and the people underneath you because you're buying their loyalty. This is in a time of war now. So you have Ukrainian soldiers at the front lines fighting for a cause that doesn't exist. They're fighting for a Ukraine that doesn't exist. And they're being slaughtered. Hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian men have lost their lives. Tens of millions of Ukrainians have been displaced from their homes. 
There's people out there that claim they care about the Ukrainian children. But what about the millions of Ukrainian children who do not have stability, who lack a home, who lack a father because their father's dead or in the front line or wounded or shattered? We don't talk about the shattered. So here we fought a 20-year conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we have American soldiers come home, service members come home, and they're shattered by post-traumatic stress and we're not dealing with it properly we have these lost souls in our nation dealing with drug addiction dealing with alcoholism dealing with a shattered life and we haven't experienced anything like what the ukrainians are experiencing right now ukraine is overwhelmed soldiers who have been shattered to the front line psychologically shattered they've come home they cannot integrate they beat their wives they beat their children they get drunk they're drug addicts and we don't care about them they've been abandoned because there's no a network to help them. And these are the ones who have lived. What about the ones who have died? And now think of the families that have been disrupted, displaced. This isn't, this is more than just about Zelensky stealing money. And he has stolen a lot of money and it's been systemic in nature and it's U S taxpayer money that he's stealing and we let him steal it. But if we're going to call ourselves human beings, we need to reflect on the human cost of this because this goes beyond simple corruption. This is the destruction of a nation. This is the destruction of a people. This is the worst crime imaginable, and we are the ones doing it because we're the ones that created Zelensky. We're the ones that empower Zelensky. We're the ones that give him the money. And yet we flip the script and blame Putin, blame Russia for this. This is what's wrong about this whole thing, because as long as you buy into a narrative that says Putin's wrong, Russia's wrong, you're ignoring the fact that the solution to the problem isn't defeating Russia but ending this war and ending this cycle of corruption, this death orgy that's taking place. Sorry, I, I went off a little long there. No, you, you gave us an extraordinarily insightful overview, and we appreciate it. I'd like to go on two fronts now, if you would, please. I'm always interested in my journalism as getting to the root of something. We can deal with the symptoms up here, but that's not going to change anything. Changing symptoms doesn't help. We need to change the cause. Now, you would have thought that an open society would look at how did this happen? Did the United States play a role in the coup that occurred? If so, who was a part of that? We've heard the name Gloria Newland. She is a part of the ultra uh, war hawk group in the neocons in Washington, D.C., as is her husband, and the foundations they're affiliated with, and the Council on Foreign Relations, etc. Not a single journalist in the United States mainstream has brought this to the public's attention, held her accountable. Now, for 20 years, 20 years now, the United States Congress has not allowed, due to its control over what will become a committee uh, hearing, the head of the Senate, Schumer, head of the House, Nancy Pelosi, control what is allowed to be discussed, who's allowed to be brought in, either voluntarily under subpoena. And I'll just give you one example of this. Um, and as a result, corporate interest, the deep state interest, the, uh, the control over the social platforms like YouTube and Facebook and, and Google have been hidden. Even to mention such a thing, you're immediately condemned as a conspiracy theorist in a nutshell. As a result, then you get these panels all the same on MSNBC and CBS and face the nation, and they all say the same thing. You've got to follow the facts and the science and the evidence, and that's official. 
Well, what if you're not one of the officials following the facts, but an independent journalist, independent scientist, independent politician, independent uh, professor or medical doctor, and you see the consequences of only allowing one truth, the corporate truth, the government truth, you saw it in COVID. Now we can say, and I wrote 33 articles deconstructing everything about COVID, that everything they said was wrong. It is not my opinion. It is the actual facts. And now they're being challenged with this. By the way, you may not know this, but the latest fact is really interesting. This is just an aside. But uh, Jonathan Turley, who I'm sure you're aware of, the constitutional attorney at George Washington University, and, and a really honest, decent human being, very smart, he just reported yesterday that there is a person who I was not aware of in the government who is the only person allowed to go in and recertify a head of an agency, the seven heads of agencies, like Anthony Fauci, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, Collins, U.S. Public Health Service, National Cancer Institute, the FDA, CDC, etc. And based upon the law, and he was saying, this is the law, uh, you, cannot, you cannot unilaterally decide to backdate anything. That's, that's a felony. You can't do that. The law says that you have to be certified, and if you're not, then you're no longer under the jurisdiction of the United States government. And he gave the date that that was supposed to have been certified. None of them were certified. No one was certified. And so that means that as of mid-2021, Anthony Fauci was just a common citizen. He had no rights. He had no identification protection because he was going on television, going before Congress, lying in, uh, in Rand Paul's committee about weapons mass destruction, excuse me, uh, uh, the gain-of-function research. He was doing that as a citizen, it turns out. That means he's completely culpable. And now let's see what happens with this. Let's see what happens when lawyers start to look at bringing actions against these people as citizens, not as the head of an agency and you're protected. So that's something brand new. Going back to my point, no one has shown us the truth because no committee was allowed to be convened with experts brought in to talk about, did Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, uh, Susan Rice, and others participate in a coup in uh, Ukraine, in Honduras, in other countries, in Syria, in, in Libya? And if there was such a committee, which never happened, uh, then all these people would be testifying under oath, and then other people be, could be brought in. But they controlled the committees. They controlled the chairpersons, the committees. None of this was allowed in any aspect of, of life. One more example, and I'm using this example to show you how utterly captured our federal regulatory agencies and those committees are. There's a Dr. Brian Hooker. Are you familiar with him? That's right, yeah. Okay, his son... For those who are not, his son uh, took the vaccines, the MMR vaccine, develop autism. He is a scientist. He's a professor at a university in California. And he just wanted to know, how did this happen? So he filed Freedom of Information Act requests with the uh, CDC. Now, normally, these are done by bureaucrats. These are done by functionaries. They're invisible people. You just file, and you either get something, it's redacted or not. But in this case, something unusual that I never have never heard of before. The heads of a department 
contacted him, a Dr. William Thompson. And he happened to have not just been the head of a department, he was the head scientist on the MMR vaccine. And then so there was some sympathetic, I can understand your pain, et cetera. And they had conversations. Okay. But then in one conversation, he did a mea culpa, something that never happened. He said, I've got to be honest with you. We're responsible for that. We knew, we knew that the MR vaccine was causing a 350% increase in autism in young African-American children, males, 36 months and younger. And because of this, we collected all the data, all the worksheets, all the evidence. They're brought into my office, put into garbage bags, black garbage bags, and we destroyed them, except for one copy. I was afraid, what if I'm ever compelled to testify before Congress? I kept a copy. From then on, every conversation was recorded by Brian Hooker. And then he compelled, uh, he compelled Thompson to become a whistleblower, which he did. And then a Posey, a legislator from Florida, received tens of thousands of documents that that uh, Thompson gave him and uh, Brian Hooker. Now, I've played that audio clip of him confessing on my radio program. I put it in a documentary uh, that I did. Nothing Posey could do, nothing anyone could do to compel Congress, either in the House or Senate, to do a hearing because of all the money that went from Big Pharma to those legislators. We talk about a crime against humanity. Even the Black Caucus would not uh, do this, even though the, their constituents were directly responsible. So that tells me an awful lot about the integrity or lack thereof of members of Congress of wanting to find the truth. Now, for the first time in 20 years, that the House is now in the control of the Republicans. And I'm, no, I'm not Democrat or I'm not Republican. All right. I don't support either one. I see corruption on both sides. But at least there are people within the committees now who head the committees who are bringing in witnesses we've never had before. And it's knocking the establishment and the deep state back on its heels. And we're going to see even more of this and more of this and more of this. And uh, so that said, please give us what you know about America's complicity in causing the coup that led to this conflict that no one wants to talk about because it would show that, hold on, it was just some crazy monk, uh, some, some person like uh, Putin who wants to take over Eastern Europe. That's the thing. Oh, if we don't stop him in Ukraine, then we'll go to Poland and every place else. And there's no evidence of that. Please tell us what you know. Well, before I, 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 I go into what I know, I mean, um, I just want people to know that I approach this from a um, from a position of experience. Um, you know, you you talk about congressional hearings and such. Um, in in in, in, in August of nineteen ninety eight, I resigned from my position as the um, as a, a chief weapons inspector in uh, the United Nations on Iraq. And in September third, I was uh, asked to testify before a joint session of the uh, Senate Armed Forces uh, Armed Forces Committee and the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. First time they ever had a joint session, sort of a big deal. Um, I was supposed to testify alongside Madeleine Albright, who is the Secretary of State, and um, the uh, Secretary of Defense. And um, we were going to talk about uh, American interference with the weapons inspections. Um, I was junior. I, I'll admit that I was a junior person, but um, 
I had been at every meeting. I was the subject of every meeting. I ran the inspections every meeting talked about. I knew everything about everything when it came to this. And um, had Madeleine Albright and uh, the Secretary of Defense appeared alongside me, they would have been exposed as corrupt liars, um, disseminators of, of misinformation, uh, anything other than being honorable uh, representatives of the United States. And American policy would have been shown to have been corrupt. So they refused to attend together with me. And the Democrats tried to stop, because this is the time of Bill Clinton, the Democrats tried to stop the hearings from happening. Um, the Republicans intervened, and in a unique uh, parliamentary maneuver, Trent Lott, who at the time was the Senate Majority Leader, suspended uh, the Senate and then reconvened it um, to bypass uh, certain um, procedurals that, that the Democrats tried to prevent, and the hearing went forward. Um, and I and I testified before that that hearing became sort of famous uh, or infamous, depending on where you're at, for uh, Joe Biden's uh, chastising of me on, uh, on national TV uh I'm uh, operating above my pay grade. That's why they get the limos and you don't, Scotty boy, uh, and all this kind of stuff. But um, that that made me um, politically acceptable in certain circles that were um, maneuvering against the uh, Clinton, against the Democrats. And uh, I was heavily recruited by the Council for Foreign Relations. Um, they were trying to make me a, a fellow. Um, I spoke at Harvard. I spoke at every elite institute there was in America. I was the go-to guy. Uh, but it was conditioned on me being willing to change my narrative to fit their narrative. See, my narrative was fact-based. Their narrative was politically driven. And I refused to do that. And I was dumped from, um, you know, from, from, from the elite circles, I was suddenly made an outcast. Uh, that's okay. That's, uh, you know, I don't care. Uh, I continue to speak, but in the buildup to the war in Iraq in 2002, as you speak of hearings, I was pressuring, uh, John Kerry. I was pressuring Joe Biden. I was pressuring, um, Chuck Hagel and others to convene a Senate hearing similar to the one that we had done in September of 1998 for the purpose of discussing, um, you know, is there a case for war against Iraq? Are there weapons of mass destruction in Iraq that constitute a threat to the United States uh, so grave that it would warrant going to war? Um, and at first, they refused to uh, to, to have these hearings. Uh, they they said there's no need for these hearings. But the pressure that I put on was so great that they finally, in July of 2002, had to agree that there needed to be a hearing. I wasn't invited because the hearing they were gonna have wasn't designed to tell the American people the truth. It was designed to, uh, to, to shape a public perception that Saddam, in fact, had the weapons that I knew that he didn't have. It was designed to lie to the American people. And this was a huge education for me, to watch this take place, watch how the uh, Senate um, failed in its duty to uh, to report accurately about things to the American public, because that's the purpose of hearings. The hearing is supposed to be a public hearing so that the people's representatives hold to account people, ask questions to empower themselves with knowledge and then share that knowledge with the American public so that the American public will be supportive of whatever policies are derived from these hearings. And what we found is that the Senate held a hearing because they wanted to go to war on the base of a lie. And this was a, you know, this was a, come to Jesus moment for me. Uh, because up until that time, I maybe naively had believed that 
the Congress worked for us, that the Congress did the bidding of the people, that the American government, however imperfect it is, uh, ultimately is responsive to truth uh, in an effort to do the right thing by the American people. And that's when I realized that it was all a lie. It was all a lie. And once you understand that, it's like all the pretense just swept away and you see what's going on in Congress. You suddenly recognize all, all the things that you thought were peripheral are dominant. What I mean by peripheral is I knew that when I was going to speak to members of Congress that I was hound dogged by uh, special interest groups, in particular uh, the the uh, APAC, the um, the uh, Air, uh, American Israeli Public Affairs uh, Committee. They hound dogged me. So every time I went and talked to a senator or a representative, they came in right behind and made their pitch. And other people did the same thing uh, to promote lies. Victoria Newland is part of this shadow element, this unelected, um, permanent uh, uh, entity in Washington, D.C., whose job is to not just influence Congress, but to direct Congress. Influence is what I was trying to do, sit down and put facts on the table, have a discussion, and see if through the strength of my argument, I can get a member of Congress to say, gosh, that's the right thing. Let's do the right thing. Control is to sit down and say, if you don't do what we tell you to do, read from the script that we want you to read, we will have you primaried in the next election and you will no longer be that which you want to be, which is an elected official, thereby cutting you off from sources of corruption that make you rich, that make the people around you rich. Because I learned that senators and congressmen aren't the Jimmy Stewart uh, character and Mr. Smith goes to Hollywood. I mean, I love that movie. I watched it. I believed it. I'm like, that's the way. No, they're not like, there's not a single one like that. And I'm just saying you right off the bat, you don't get to be elected in higher office unless you have first capitulated to special interests who fund your campaign. There's no honest politician. The one exception to that was a guy who could fund his own election and, uh, and, and, and had enough name recognition that he didn't have to buy. And that was Donald Trump. Um, you know, but I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole either. But the, the point is your average mainstream American politician is corrupt as the day is long. There's not a single honest American politician there because they have all sold out to one special interest or another. And Ukraine is the ultimate special interest because Ukraine represents a tool being used by those people who seek to shape geopolitical reality in a way that permits the massive expansion of American defense expenditures linked to the military industrial complex, which is then linked to Congress who funds the military industrial complex and the military industrial complex who filters money back to Congress to keep Congress in power. So it's this vicious circle of in self-enrichment that Dwight D. Eisenhower warned us about back in uh, 1961, I believe, when he gave his farewell address. Um, and he said, the greatest threat to American democracy is the military industrial complex working with Congress because it will take control of the you know of, of the nation and the nation will now be working for war, not peace, working for corporations, not the people. And that's where we are today. Victoria Newland is a product of 
this system. I saw the system in play, how it drove us to a war with Iraq that did not need to be fought. There was no reason for us to go to war against Iraq. There was no justification. And I saw this system pervert Congress and create out of lies the perception of truth that was sold to the American people so that we ended up going to a war that took 20 years. It still isn't resolved. Thousands of American lives lost, millions of innocent civilians in in Iraq, uh, lives lost, disrupted, an entire region torn asunder. Um, And it's happening today. Ukraine is not a cause. We are not fighting for the glory of Ukraine. We are not fighting for the independence of the Ukrainian people. We don't know the Ukrainian people. That's the other thing I want to ask the American people. Do you even know what you're giving money to support? Do you know who Stepan Bandera is? Do you know how Ukraine, the state of Ukraine, was crafted? Do you understand that it's not a natural entity, that it's an artificial entity cobbled together by various political factions over the time, including the Bolsheviks, including the Soviets, but now including uh, Europe and the United States? Um, it's, It's an artificial entity that we allow to exist because we can use it and its corruption to enrich ourselves, and we can use its existence to tear down the Russians whom this power elite have determined uh, we must build into an enemy uh, to justify continued military expenditures in NATO and in the United States. But you can't expend money unless you actually have a threat that uh, justifies that. So when you have Russia saying, hey, we'd like to peacefully coexist, we don't want war. We want to work with you. We'd like nuclear disarmament. We'd like to talk about a European security framework that respects the legitimate uh, interests of all parties involved. We think we can work with you. And we can't have that. We're not allowed to have that discussion. We're not allowed to say that Vladimir Putin is a reasonable man. We're not allowed to say that Vladimir Putin actually is somebody who can sit down and talk to you. We have to instead turn him into a brutal dictator, this uh, autocratic head of a state that is composed of robotic automatons, not real people, but Russian robots, uh, Boris and Natasha uh, caricatures. uh, All they want to do is march off to war in Ukraine. That's not the truth. It's the exact opposite truth. We're the ones that have pushed this conflict from the very beginning. We're the ones that promoted Ukrainian independence. We're the ones that empowered Ukraine, uh, or empowered the, 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 the nationalists, Stepan Bandera loyalists, to become the government. And we're the ones that pushed for this war. In 2008, William Burns, he was this, at that time the U.S. ambassador to Russia. William Burns warned the U.S. government 2008, that if we invite Ukraine to join NATO, it will kick off a series of events that will inevitably inevitably lead to Russian military intervention in Ukraine. So we knew cause-effect relationships. We knew from the head, the, the head U.S. diplomat that if we invite Ukraine to join NATO, it will inevitably lead, lead to a war with Russia. He wrote that memorandum in early 2008. In November 2008, we invited Ukraine to join NATO. So anybody who says we never thought this was going to happen, it's a bald-faced lie. We invited Ukraine to NATO because we needed a war with Russia. We needed conflict to justify the expenditures. Victoria Nuland is an agent of this enterprise. Her job is to facilitate this, these, the policies that are necessary to make all of this happen. 
anybody listening to this podcast, understand this. You have been conned, one of the greatest cons of all time. If you have a Ukrainian flag on your social media, if you fly a Ukrainian flag in your front yard, if you are sympathetic to the Ukrainian cause, let me just make it clear. The only cause you're sympathetic to is the cause of American imperialism, the imperialism of a of a of a, of a you know of, of, of a nation that's unwilling to live in a world that uh, is populated by nations that seek to be our equals. It's not as though we're opposing nations who want to dominate us. We can't accept nations as our equals. And all Russia's ever asked since the collapse of the Soviet Union is to be treated as an equal. We can't accept that, so we seek to destroy them. Thank you. I appreciate that. We only have about uh, six minutes left. I want to deal with what's happening right now, and that is NATO, this summit, and the United States uh, willing to give, voluntarily to give cluster bombs to Zelensky's military, to me seems uh, very foolish. Concerning the cluster bombs, does this change events on the battlefield at all? And what do you think uh, Putin's response is going to be when those cluster bombs start going off? And this is a, we've, we've condemned cluster bombs. The United States government has, the military has. And now we're facilitating this, enabling this. From what I understand, these are going to be the old bombs that have been mothballed. So the failure rate will be high. There are also accusations that Russia has been using cluster munitions, but I can't find evidence of that. Possibly you would. You're more aware of that. And uh, in fact, I can only see that if we start using cluster bombs, that Russia may start to escalate what they're going to be doing. And I haven't seen yet. Maybe you have where they've used um, their cyber warfare to just stop electricity. They can do a lot of stuff. Uh, China and Russia both are really masters at, at this field. And I haven't seen where they've brought these into the battle yet. Could you explain, please, from a more informed uh, place? Well, you know, Russia has been sending signals to the United States for some time now about their cyber capabilities. Um, uh, if you recall, uh, they've, they've the U.S. has admitted that uh, you know Russia pretty much got total access to our databases. That Russia went in and showed it could take control of um, of, of, of 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 switches and, and and such. But Russia never executed the plan. They just went in and showed that they can penetrate, and then they did nothing. They pulled back. It was a signal. It's telling the United States, we can shut you down anytime we want to, but we don't want to. We would like to work with you because the United States is doing the same thing in Russia. Understand the Russians on a daily basis are uncovering efforts by the United States to do the same thing to Russia. You know, we, we are trying to go in and be able to shut down power grids, shut down, um, you know, uh, energy infrastructure, uh, shut down uh, strategic communications, and the Russians are, are fighting us. And so what they've done is they've sent a signal saying, we know what you're doing. We can do it better than you, but we don't want to do that. Russia's in the business of escalation management. They don't want any aspect of this conflict to spin out of control because they are hoping to come back to a position of peaceful coexistence. That's the Russian strategic objective. But I think everybody should understand that anytime Russia wants, they can shut this thing down. Um, and we, 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 you know, we don't under, I guess the average American doesn't understand that. 
Uh, cluster munitions. Um, look, first of all, they're not illegal. The United States hasn't signed the Oslo Accords, neither is Russia, neither is Ukraine. They are immoral, and Russia has recognized this. Russia did use cluster munitions in the early aspects of the uh, early phases of this conflict on limited occasions where cluster munitions are called to be used. I mean, they, they exist for a reason. They're, they're designed to break up enemy formations, break up mass tanks, uh, uh, you know, take down uh, troops in the open, etc. But after September of last year, when these territories became Russian territories, the Russians stopped using cluster munitions altogether because Russia said, we're not going to use cluster munitions on Russian soil. And a lot of the fighting that's taking place today is on soil that Russia says belongs to us. So they haven't used cluster munitions. Um, there's uh, anecdotal information from a, uh, from a Russian um, a battlefield commander of some note, um, uh, Kodakovsky, uh, that they've already started using these artillery shells, that they're already in Ukraine, they're already being used. And as I predicted, um, they're, they're having no effect. He said, we were hit by these shells, um, but because of the, the trenches, because we're dug in, because we have overhead coverage, we suffered no casualties. And most of the most of the, the shells were duds. They got hung up in the vegetation. They failed to explode on the ground. High dud rate, which means now that these these cluster munitions are going to be littering the battlefield, uh, contaminating them in the future. So that if you don't clean them up, and they're very difficult to detect, some child down the road is going to pick them up, view them as a toy, and blow himself up. Um, this isn't going to have a, an impact. Russia has said uh, straight up: if you use these weapons against us, the gloves are off. And we'll use them against you. Russia has a tenfold advantage in artillery. And Russia has far more superior cluster munitions than that which have been provided to Ukraine. And, um, the, the, you know, so the Russians will probably unleash hell on the Ukrainians, making the battlefield an even more lethal place for the Ukrainians. Uh, well, well, we only have uh, about a minute and a half left. Could you please just summarize to the best of your uh, ability, and we know it's a guess. What do you see Russia doing? What do you see the outcome of this likely to be within the next year? Well, first of all, I don't think Ukraine can sustain this level of violence. Uh, and unfortunately, my dogs have uh, taken offense to something that's happening in my house. But um, uh, the Ukrainians can't sustain this level of violence. Uh, they've lost far too many men. They're unable to replace these men. Uh, the billions of dollars of NATO equipment has been destroyed on the battlefield. NATO doesn't have any more equipment to give. So I, I believe that um, Russia will achieve a strategic military victory over Ukraine sometime by the end of the summer, early fall. Uh, then Russia will work towards achieving a political victory, which will involve uh, getting rid of the Zelensky regime, replacing it with something else, and that this will unfold over the course of, of the next year. But this, this war is going to end, I believe, sometime by end of summer this fall, just simply because Ukraine can't continue to lose manpower and equipment at the rates that they're losing them. Thank you very much. Scott Ritter, we appreciate you appearing with us today, and we look forward to more conversations. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you all for watching and listening to the Progressive Radio Network and our program on Progressive Commentary Hour. Have a nice day.
brother, brother There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find 